Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, Chief Commerce Strategy Officer and Publicist, and Scott Wingo, CEO of Get Spiffy and co-founder of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 244, being recorded on Wednesday, October 28th, 2020. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, and as usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason, and welcome back. Jason Scott Show listeners, we are recording this days before Halloween, um, and also the release of the next season two of The Mandalorian. So, unfortunately, uh, on the podcast, you can't see it, but Jason is wearing full Mandalorian gear for this episode, so that's exciting. Um, and since uh, since it's coming up on Halloween and we're heading into the busy holiday season, um, and before we get into that chaos, we thought it would be good to go up to 30,000 feet for a little bit and look around and uh, have someone here on the show help us think about some of the bigger trends um, the, around digital and e-commerce from the West Coast. So we're really excited to have on the show um, Greg Bettinelli. He is partner at Upfront Ventures. Upfront's portfolio includes, uh, and this is just a small sampling, um, some brands I think you'll recognize, such as ThreadUp, Parachute Home, Adore Me, Skyler, Verishop, Goat, Happy Returns, Envia Robotics, Chow Now, Verishop. Uh, I said that one twice, so that that's a uh, that's You can really tell which one. is Scott's favorite. Yeah, yeah. Uh, shout out to Imran, and then uh, and then a uh, uh, little gratuitous plug for some of the transportation investments: Fair, Bird, and SureSale. Greg, welcome to the show. Hey guys, great to be here. I appreciate the invite. I sure hope the first two hundred and forty-three guests were average, and I will come over the top, and we'll have a great discussion. Yeah, we feel like those two hundred and forty-three rehearsals are going to pay off tonight. <laughs> exactly. I've been practicing. I've listened to it a lot. So. Yeah. Well, you know, Greg, one of the things we learned from those shows is the guests always like to be grounded a little bit in the background of our guests. So um, can you introduce yourself and maybe talk to us about how you came into your current role? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and uh, Scott and I go way back from early days at, at eBay, or it's called mid, mid-years at eBay. Uh, but it's really where I got my start in and around e-commerce and marketplaces. I joined uh, eBay in uh, early 2003. Um, which was really the second wave of eBay uh, when auctions were at its peak. Um, and uh, at eBay, I had some pretty exciting roles and did what I think are some interesting things. And so back then, we had a very uh, robust category management team in the North America business. Um, and I was lucky enough to, to be really the, one of the first people at eBay to recognize uh, a lot of interest in categories like ticketing, um, I also ran the entertainment business at eBay, which back then we sold DVDs and textbooks and video games on top of inter- entertainment memorabilia and things like that. And also uh, played a big role in what we did with sports, whether it was on the collectible side, on the the jersey and apparel side. And so got to really work with some interesting businesses there. But I was, I was at eBay for five years and all everyone really knows me for is the guy who said we should buy StubHub. Um, and we bought StubHub for, I think, about $285 million in 2007. Um, and as you both know, eBay just sold that business for $4 billion about a, a month before the pandemic, which turned out to be the greatest transaction of all time. Because um, now I love that brand. I'm not sure it's a great time to be in the ticketing business. Uh, but from there, from eBay, um, I spent some time at StubHub. And eventually uh, moved down to Los Angeles. I had been in the Bay Area for a while uh, and went to work for a company called Live Nation for a period of time uh, where I was on the executive team, uh, recruited out of eBay to kind of help build a competitor to, to Ticketmaster of all things. And if you go back into 2008, 2009, the economy, especially in the 2009, was not great. And Ticketmaster and Live Nation ended up merging. Uh, which was not a place I wanted to be having spent most of my career at eBay competing against Ticketmaster and, and candidly receiving a lot of cease and desist letters from Ticketmaster for the work we were doing at eBay and StubHub. And it was, it was not something for me. So I ended up leaving and um, I went to, a, a at that point, a very young company in Los Angeles called Hopemook, which was a, a fashion e-commerce business, more of an, an online sample sale business. At that time, there was a couple companies similar to us 
Guilt Group and Ru La La in particular, and eventually Zoo Lily, which ended up being the best of the bunch. Uh, but I was the chief marketing officer at Hotlook and was there for two years um, actually, before we sold the business to Nordstrom for about $300 million. Um, I like to call it a, you know, it's a, a, a solid RBI double. Um, it was a great outcome in a short period of time and very good for me personally and professionally, but also helped me, you know, I had a, a couple of years left of my vesting post that acquisition. So I, I was able to spend a lot of time working with the Nordstrom team. Um, thinking about what they were doing around e-commerce, what they were doing around mobile in particular, and what to do with kind of their full price and off price brand. So I was I was there through 2013, and then eventually left in 2013 and made my way into venture capital because everybody wants to be a venture capitalist because it's super easy. Um, and so I hopped on board uh, in 2013. If you go back, there wasn't a lot going on in Los Angeles um, at that time, and came a little bit before and. I, I knew there was, you know, huge opportunities. Having spent time in Silicon Valley, um, but also making home in Los Angeles, it's it's where the most creative people in the world live. Um, we're very powerful on things like commerce and communication and content and community. You know, companies now we think about like Snapchat, which is now a forty billion dollar company. Um, companies like GoodRx, which is a a $20 billion company, companies like Riot Games, which is a leader, the, the maker of, of League of Lemon, League, League, League of Legends. Um, a lot of super interesting things. You know, Tinder was invented in Los Angeles. And I've always been bullish on Los Angeles and, and coined the phrase Long LA, which is just a, a, a sign that, you know, there's a lot of exciting things happening in Los Angeles. And I really bet my career that I could be a part of that ecosystem, helping to fund new companies. So I joined uh, upfront ventures. And for the past seven or so years, I've been uh, a series A investor in early stage technology companies. Um, I work in uh, businesses from direct to consumer businesses to marketplaces and managed marketplaces, businesses, marketing services, businesses. Um, I do work around what I call commerce innovation. So identifying companies at the very earliest stage where they're, they're working to solve friction points that exist in commerce. Um, and it's really, um, I do other things as well, like consumer fintech and the like, but at my core, I'm, I'm a commerce guy. Um, and I've been doing that for a long time and I enjoy it. I have, you know, I trade on some instincts around consumer behavior. I recognize, I think I can see around some corners of things that a lot of people in the marketplace can't see. And I think I've done pretty well. I didn't, we, as a firm, we do broader investing upfront ventures. We'll probably, you know, look at us as the, the first or second check into a very early stage business that we do across a, a wide discipline of investment opportunities from software businesses to healthcare technology to food tech and ag tech and digital media. But, but I do really over-index on the commerce um, and consumer sides of the investment opportunities. And it's fair to say that commerce is the coolest part of the portfolio anyway, right? Yeah, as far as, you know, I communicate to my partners, for sure. Um, it's definitely the thing that is easiest for coffee talk. I've, uh, I've been very lucky. Um, I always seem to work for companies that people know and have experienced before. And, you know, it's something I really like. I can even remember the earliest days of eBay where you would hear, you know, I could go to my Aunt Marilyn's house for Thanksgiving and I tell them I work at eBay and everyone there knows what eBay was. And this is you know, in the early 2000s. Um, and there aren't a lot of jobs like that. So I've always liked kind of being around and something about working more consumer and commerce plays. People have uh, more understanding of what you do versus if you're selling some enterprise software solution or something like that, which you have to explain to your Uncle George what it actually is. So yeah. absolutely. Uh, I think my, my wife happened to ask who the guest was tonight. And I um, was pointing out all the products around our household that you guys were in. Right. So you you right. Anyone yeah. any favorite? Any fan favorites? Or? Uh, she's actually a big fan of these ritual vitamins. I yep. feel like might be her her go to. You may have exited from that already. I can't remember. No, we oh. haven't. Oh, okay. But it's it's part of well, a theme. Yeah, you have. Uh, you just don't know it yet. I'm just yeah, no. <laughs> yeah. Not that I haven't BC. Uh, no, but that we were the first check into that business, um, and I had worked for a long time. I remember just identifying these D to C direct consumer opportunities, of which there was. Candidly, no brand leadership with reoccurring purchasing characteristics. I like to say I'm smart, but it's not that sophisticated. But in categories like vitamins, 
Um, if I were to ask you to name the leading vitamin manufacturer, you wouldn't be able to do so because no consumer actually can. Um, and at the same time, there is replenishment. And as you know, with um, replenishment, I, especially things that you can put in a small box, like those are very attractive e-commerce business, high margins, reoccurring and no brand leadership. Um, and so if, I've actually had a few of those and we as a firm have a few of those and it's a simple strategy, but I think it's, it's turned out to be pretty well. Yeah. Um, I also have always think the, thought about, you know, attacking categories where there's only one brand leader. And so you talked about a dormy, you know, there, at the time that a dormy started, it was kind of Victoria's Secret. And that was it. A dormy does sell intimates and, and soft goods for women. Um, and it tends to be when you're competing against those single brands who are leaders, think of Luxottica and Warby Parker, um, you know, they're as vulnerable as most companies because they don't think anyone's coming at their heels. And then a couple of years later, they wake up and you have a pretty big business in your hand. So, yeah, like I said, I don't like to overthink things, um, but there are some pretty compelling opportunities. That I think yeah, yeah. I think we also, uh, we do have some Adormi products some parachute product. Yeah. Uh, there's some bird scooters parked in front of my uh, condo. And I actually wanted to talk to you about that later, but okay. Okay. I'm just, I'm teasing. Uh, yeah. So, uh, that's all awesome. And because you challenged me, the largest vitamin manufacturer in the U S is liner healthcare products and they make private label vitamins for Walmart and Walgreens. Um, Exactly. Yeah. I'm the, the one guy you probably don't want (laughs) to, uh, but, uh, that, that is all awesome. And then I I happen to, I mean, timing is everything, but you've worked for a bunch of companies that were uh, great while you were there, but were not, COVID was not very friendly to. I feel like the whole ticket yeah. and sporting goods. And then it's also not that fun to be selling apparel through a department store right about now. No. Um, and it's weird, unless you're in the off price side, which at least as of now, those stocks have, you know, if you look at TJX and Ross and Burlington, their stocks are really only off 20 maybe 20% from the peak pre-COVID peaks, which is amazing considering they have zero e-commerce and I'm guessing they're selling at 50 to 30 to 50% capacity uh, pre-COVID. Um, but I think there's a big bet that the consumer is going to gravitate towards off price long-term and most likely most of the department stores that we grew up with are going to be out of business in the next 10 yeah. years. Yeah. And there's going to be a lot more inventory for those off price guys. Yeah. Um, the, you did mention uh, how fabulous the StubHub timing was. The opposite end of that might have been Burlington, which decided to turn off its e-commerce site a month before COVID. Yeah. Um, do you really think they would have been able to handle the demand had they been I, live? I, I joke. I mean, it's it, it just sounds funny, and I, I do think it's a mistake. I think there's a way to do digital for, for off-price, and I, I think... Yes. Digital, digital is an important shopping amenity for off price. So I, I think there's uh, I hated to see them pull back, but economically, I doubt it hurt them. I don't, I don't think they would have like driven a lot of revenue dollars. And then in their space, the unit economics of e-commerce are would be tricky. Yeah. Well, if you talk to the, the leadership teams at Ross, Burlington, obviously in TJX, TJ Maxx, they own TJ Maxx and Marshalls. They don't think e-commerce um, moves the needle for them. And they've all de-emphasized. I think TJ Maxx has made acquisitions. They've hired good people who aren't there anymore. Um, and their view is the return on capital is just better off putting money into stores um, and continue to perfect the buying experience. But I did, I did have my, one of my good COVID experiences was I was, I think I was pretty early and I w- went on, like we all went on the hand sanitizer see, um, journeys Mm-hmm. Um, and I pounded Dollar Tree online when they still had an online store and they, they had like a case of those two ounce bottles of hand sanitizer. Um, nice. And three weeks later, I received my hand sanitizer. Uh, actually, 15 business days, which, as you know, sounds like two weeks, but it's really three. Uh, and <laughs> that's a marketing trick. Um, and uh, yeah, so that was my my first only time I ever bought from a dollar store was in search of uh, the hand sanitizer because I couldn't find it anywhere in Los Angeles. Yeah, Amazon Prime has a spoiled. Whenever something takes more than four days, you're like, you assume it's just been lost forever. Right. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> the uh, so on the upfront side, uh, you said you guys are one of the first checks in. Is is that kind of um, give us like the little kind of the VC spiel. Are you, is that like seed series a in, yeah. in LA vernacular? And then like, what's kind of the average check size and yeah. where are you guys, how assets under management, that kind of thing. 
Yeah, so look at us as, I would say, late seed to Series A. So our typical average first check is, is about $4 million. Um, and we are active lead investors. So we're most likely leading around, um, taking a board seat, really helping uh, to formulate a company and be a truly added value investor. Um, we will make out of a fund, which right now we're investing out of a $400 million fund. It's our sixth fund, um, upfront six. Um, but we'll make 30 to 35 what we call platform investments. So those are lead investments. And unlike a lot of firms, we reserve um, a significant amount of capital for follow-on investment. So use that $4 million example. If you just do four times 30, that's 120. We have a $400 million fund. So we're clearly reserving more, you know, upwards of two-thirds of our capital for follow-on. And that's both because, look, a lot of great companies take a long time to build. And in addition, in our world, we want to deploy capital against our best companies over a long period of time. Um, so we like those, we say, back up the truck against companies that um, do need new capital for growth, but we want to invest in those because we think there's an optimal time for, for optimal opportunity for returns. Um, so we really play in that space of, you know, it's really a, you know, maybe, you know, the late seed to, to series A stage. Yeah. Uh, and this is a little bit outside of our wheelhouse, but I was kind of curious what you think. So, so um this may be a Silicon Valley thing. So it was a big trend in Silicon Valley to not go public for as long as possible, going public's evil and terrible and whatnot. So, so you had like Uber and Airbnb, these companies wait till they got to this really, really big scale. But then it seems like the pendulum has swung, is swinging really hard the other way where now we have this whole kind of SPAC craziness where, you know, a lot of the Silicon Valley guys are going out and getting these, these vehicles that can take a company public through this kind of different way. Um, what what's your feeling about that that trend? Yeah, for sure. Especially like I think the SPAC is relevant to businesses by which there's this perception that there's this Robin Hood type of investor. So any company that a Robin Hood trader would have heard of should be public, right? So DraftKings really started it. Um, you know, I guess Robin Hood technically hasn't gone public yet. But this so you're seeing a lot of conversation about more consumer type of transactional businesses. I think the reason why this is happening is nobody went public for a long time. And yeah. so there was really just a dearth of opportunities to invest in fast growing companies, especially on the consumer side. Now, the SaaS businesses have been doing extremely well for a long period of time. Um, and, and, you know, the public markets and those, there are SPAC opportunities there, but those have been, um, you know, a lot of great performance by companies that have gone public over the past five years. And candidly, a tremendous amount of shareholder value created after they're public. Just look at Shopify as like the, the great example, right? Is I think that went public at $12 a share or something like that. Yeah. And maybe, maybe traded like 30 and now it's over a thousand. Um, and that was only, you know, five years ago, roughly. So how many hundred, you know, hundred plus billion dollars of value created as a public company. Yeah. Um, crazy. And so, yeah, so there are, so that's example. Yeah. And I think, look, the reality is, um, the the public markets are strong right now. I think there was about a six week period between March twelfth and May first, yeah. where people were nervous. I was nervous. Everybody was nervous. A lot of our companies made very hard choices um, around organizations, around marketing spend, and I think there was a sigh of relief. I think it was prompted by the the a lot of the the checks went out. Um, that money wasn't all spent on rent. Um, it was spent and propelled a lot, especially on the consumer side. I think it also enabled um, a recognition that software is eating the world, as Mark Andreessen would say, and just this gravitation to anything that was, you know, is code-based or commerce-based that doesn't doesn't touch bricks and mortar or doesn't touch legacy businesses. And I think the markets have just, the NASDAQ in particular, has just responded in a way. And I think the public mar markets are now feeding that um, frenzy. Um, personally, I hope it lasts forever. It probably won't. <laughs> uh, uh, but I think you're seeing uh, that play out. And even the companies that, you know, I think of like the Casper IPO as a user example. Um, I think they even they are trading where they were they are about to say it wasn't an overwhelming successful IPO. Um, but, you know, they're about where they were pre-COVID. Um, and so, but there's been a lot of, you know, I track, I have all of them on my iPhone, all those companies from Revolve to Real, real, and uh, um, Poshmark, or not Poshmark, um, Stitch Fix, and others, and they've all, you know, bounced back three to four x since even their lows. 
um, which was usually, you know, kind of by April 1st or so, but it's been, it's been crazy for lack of a better term for sure. Yeah. I think that's a good backdrop. So, so, you know, I think it's really interesting because as a VC, what, what a lot of people probably don't realize, um, you know, I think most people kind of think of shark tank is kind of their, <laughs> their, their perspective and, and maybe, you know, uh, the social network, um, kind of, uh, as how VCs work, but you guys have to, you're kind of betting on a 10 year forward basis, right? And that, that seems like it's got to be tricky. So I, I thought we'd hit on some of the themes where you have some clustering in your portfolio. Yep. Um, one of the ones that, that you and I share is our love of marketplaces. Uh, obviously you were at eBay and, and got to see the birth of one of the bigger marketplaces. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in your portfolio, uh, you know, one of the ones that we wanted to talk about was goat, uh, I am not a sneakerhead, uh, but but uh, you know I love I love that category. I think it's really wild to watch what's going on there. So wanted to get in on that. Uh, and then my favorite one that you have is some of my best investments have been collectibles. So yep. so I'm a comic book guy and uh, Star Wars guy, and you know if I compare those to even things like the Google IPO, uh, the collectibles market has been just white hot, and and it's really accelerated during COVID. Um, uh, I love rally because it allows me to look at it as an investment class thing and invest in collectibles. I normally wouldn't. And even some that would be, you know, out of reach, like, uh, you know, the first appearance of Spider-Man or something like that. Yep. Maybe, maybe give, uh, listeners, uh, a rundown of rally. Was, was that your investment? Or, yep. Yep. Yeah, all those yeah. are mine. Yeah. Um, let me try and put them all together. Cause I think yeah. there's, you made a couple of points and you first talked about kind of time horizons, right. Um, and like, you know, Venture capital, it takes a long time to build a great company. Um, the reality is, you know, sometimes you get super lucky and everything goes up into the right. But the reality is building businesses is extremely challenging. And one thing I've learned, you know, as an investor, um, is just the amount of work and um, pride and everything that goes into these teams who are building these companies. And for example, I'm GOAT. I think I wasn't even at Upfront Ventures when the team invested in what the company that became goes. I think we made our first investment in May of 2012. So we are now eight and a half years into that investment wow. to get some perspective. And Goat is about a four, year, four, a four and a half year old business now. So they spent three and a half years treading water, trying to find something that worked. It was originally an app that was trying to connect people with like interests in physical settings. So if you and I all like comic books, we would go and set up a dinner and we'd talk comic books and we didn't know each other, but we, 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 we would build a community online, offline that we initiated online. Um, and the reality is, you know, people don't like to meet people they don't know. Um, so it was a tough business, especially um, comic book collectors. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. A little bit of an introverted crowd. Um, and so when I got to, when I got to upfront, um, that was kind of one of my first projects was, Hey, we have this very talented team. They just haven't found product market fit. And the story of, and it's been written about and it's been, but Eddie and Dyson, who are the founders, Dyson was a sneakerhead, And when they were brainstorming ideas about what to do with the, the million dollars they had left in the bank. Um, and I asked them, how come there's not StubHub for sneakers? Because I, at, as a consumer investor, I spend time, you know, maybe not in a COVID world, but Saturday mornings, I like to go shopping. And when there's all these kids lined up outside a store on a Saturday morning, I want to know what's going on inside there because that's not normal. And whenever you see a queue, that's a signal of either something's very good or something's very bad. But in the venture world, that means something is happening that you need to pay attention to. Um, and so from there was born GOAT, which I didn't even know what GOAT stood for And when they said that's what we're going to name the company. Um, and they took some of their money, which wasn't a lot. They bought a bunch of sneakers on eBay and Flight Club and put it and seeded the marketplace. And I remember the first month of GOAT, they might have done you know, $30,000 with a GMV. And I you know, I can't say specifically, but we're doing north of a hundred million dollars a month in GMV now. Wow. Um, and that wasn't that long ago. And we're selling yeah. sneakers or they're selling sneakers. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think what's interesting about that category is they had identified two things. One, and this is a, an investment theme I have is you look for areas where there are very active communities, passion led communities where people spend a lot of time and a lot of money, but you catch them right before they go mainstream. 
And if you can catch, especially the marketplace, a, a niche business like sneakers, secondary sneakers, but there's a catalyst to it going mainstream and you become the market. And for sneakers, candidly, was the release of the Easy, the, the Kanye West Easy from Adidas, mm-hmm. which yeah. really propelled the secondary market because they had an artificial shortage. They purposely didn't release a lot of sneakers. And a lot of people wanted them. And Goat was kind of the only place to go get it at the time. Other than eBay, and as we've talked about, or as I've talked about before, um, while I love eBay and I owe a lot, my career is owed to eBay, I'll compete against them any day. Um, and that was just an example where this community was already in existence and they were just looking for a well-lit playing field, uh, which is an expression we used to use at eBay all the time. Um, and they were looking for that and it provided. And it turned out that the key to that category was the perception of fraud and that that type of customer and that type of buyer and seller didn't trust each other. And so Goat came in and said, we're going to guarantee authenticity. In fact, you send them to us, we'll make sure they're real and we'll send them. So this idea of a managed marketplace, and that was what responded. But, you know, it kind of ties to Rally, which is think of it as a stock market for collectibles where um, you can actually trade individual shares um, of an asset. But both of those businesses rely on scarcity. And scarcity is a very powerful thing. Um, consumers, re- respond to scar- consumers respond to scarcity. Businesses re- re- respond to scarcity. And if you have a scarce, scarce asset, whether it's talent or a tangible good, markets go crazy. And I think a lot of the great marketplace businesses trade on scarcity and the commonality between tickets, between sneakers, between streetwear, and now collectibles, as you point, is white hot is they're all scarce items. Um, again, I'm not that smart, but it's obvious to me that when you have something that only there aren't a lot of them and everybody wants them, it's a pretty good thing to trade. Um, and so the, the coincidence around um, what's happening with collectibles is if it was already happening pre-COVID, but especially on the sports side, there's just a nostalgia that developed in March where I'm sure you all you know, had Zooms with people in high school that you hadn't talked before and you're spending a lot more time with text groups with your sister and your brother and your mom and your dad. I think we just came back to recognize that simple things matter. And when it comes to collectibles, whether it's comic books or baseball cards or you know, video games, that we just felt it was our comfort zone. It was our safe space. And it felt good to be able to talk and trade about things that made us comfortable. And um, that was a key part of what happened with collectibles. But the irony or coincidence is I originally thought sneakers were the baseball card of Gen Z. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that baseball cards are relevant to Gen Z. again. It's actually basketball cards. Um, They're not really into baseball cards, but they're definitely into basketball cards. Um, And that has now created, you know, caught fire. And it's, it's, you know, I think my guess is, you know, the collectible assets are trading at two to three times what they were a year ago. Yeah. Um, it's now it's, it's now crazy. being determined as a you know an asset class, and it suddenly becomes an asset class with Rally's perspective. Is you know you can be the market maker for things that historically were illiquid. And again, back to the marketplace theme: if you can make illiquid markets liquid, you can dramatically grow the addressable markets. And if you can grow the addressable markets. And you can get a piece of that growth from those markets. And think of great marketplace businesses like eBay, like Uber, like Airbnb. Every investor who passed on it will say the TAMs were too small. The total addressable markets were too small. eBay was how big is the um, pawn shop market, right? Airbnb is how big is the hotel market. Uber was how big was the taxi market. The reality is they all created substantially greater addressable markets because the marketplace enabled it. StubHub was the same way. You know, how big is that market? And you don't ask those questions anymore because the secondary market has really become such a powerful thing in those markets. And I think that's what's happened with, with sneakers and, and other categories as well. Yeah. If listeners uh, get one thing from this poll, 244 episodes that we've done, uh, go to your closets, find your Pokemon cards. Uh, and then if you have any uh, of the NBA cards, I think the isn't it LeBron uh, rookie cards are going for like 8 million? Um, yeah, there's, there's, a, there's only one, one of them there. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Now, specifically, if you have your 1999 Pokemon cards. Yes. Um, and specifically, there is one card. I think it's the Charizard. Is that how you say it? I don't know my yeah. Pokemon. It's yeah. the, I know it's number four. Um, but that card is, I think, just traded for $120,000. Yeah. Um, 
yes, but it is. And, and don't, don't touch the card though. Yes. That's the, the biggest thing you do is, um, put it, I just put it actually learned, I learned today <laughs> that, um, a majority of cards that are wrapped in packs have already not rated to a nine or 10 scale. Like they came up, they come off the printing press as not perfect. Um, and that's, you know, just cause there's a lot of, there's a lot of interest in, in card in authenticators and grading right now, but it's just crazy what's happened, uh, with some of it. And wasn't, didn't Jake Paul or someone just buy, he bought that card I'm talking about. Yeah. Um, mm. it's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And LeBron said, Oh, I've got like 10 of these. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. There's nice. a lot of talk about athletes who are now, you know, as part of their deals, they're, they're going to the card manufacturers and asking, um, well, I want some of these too. Um, historically they would just sign things, but now they're, they, you know, part of their negotiation with those card companies is they want to be able to put those directly in their safes as well, because why should someone else profit from, from their likeness if they're not going to? So it's super compelling stuff. Uh, I feel like you you helped answer a question. Scott's wife had sent me a question asking if Rally was just a scam to enable Scott to buy more Star Wars memorabilia, but apparently it's legit. Yeah, and hopefully it's up. Um, I'm guessing, depending on uh, we've done we've done. I don't have I don't think we've done Star Wars. We've done like Hulk. Uh, we've done a lot of um, comic books. Yeah. Um, and we did Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Um, we did, uh, yeah. I've, I do it to diversify. Like I would never own an exotic, but I can get like a yeah. slice of some of that. And, and oh, yeah. the first one I played around with and I made like 40%. It was like, and it happened very quickly. Someone came in with a very high offer yeah. and, and I guess yeah. they, they liquidated. Yeah, no, it's great. I, my, I, was, I grew up in San Francisco or in, the, in a place called Petaluma, which is north of San Francisco. And uh, I was a San Francisco Giants fan. And one of the first rally started off doing cars it was called rally road um and so collectible cars was really the first couple of years of the business then we've we've moved it more into uh broader collectibles but there was a willie mays jersey with this kind of tobacco stain on the front of it and it was the greatest it's just a great looking jersey it's this kind of giant's gray with the orange san francisco written across and that was you know you know as a, i never really got to see mays play i'm too young for that but I would hear my dad and my grandpa talk about Willie Mays. And so back to the, the emotion parts of the collectibles categories. Um, that was, you know, I own you know, $80 worth of that Jersey. Um, but I tell, you know, it's not the first time I've told this story. And so you just get kind of the benefits of the way. And it really enables a whole new type of investor or customers to participate in markets that historically they couldn't. And I think those can make for exciting businesses for sure. Oh, definitely. Uh, one other small little fun fact about Goat. Uh, you mentioned that they authenticate all the the merchandise. So there's a a role for a authenticator, and one of their primary tactics is they smell the shoe to identify the the fake glues versus the authentic glue. So I'm just I'm chuckling at. Uh, these these folks that got this good job and went home to tell their families that they're now officially a a, a sneaker sniffer. Yes, yes, and look, these are, um, you know, let's just say the original authenticators. Where do you think they came from? Like, you know, these were these are kids who were working at Foot Locker, right? Or kids who were kind of trading Jordans, um, and you know, who knew that we could you know pay the amount of money we pay and look, we weigh them, we we check the colors, we smell them. Um, you make sure there's not two lefts, two rights, make sure there's, you know, a lot of different things. Uh, and, uh, you can tell a lot about authentic, the authenticity of a shoe by how much it weighs and where the, where it was manufactured and, and things like that. Because, you know, again, like we talked about authenticity matters. And if a marketplace has any hints of things not being authentic, it won't work. And, you know, I think that was a big challenge that the eBay had. In his, and I think it's a challenge that the Amazon has now. Um, that it's very hard for that business to play at the high end um, watches or handbags or high end sneakers or golf clubs. They don't work very well on Amazon. And I think the perception of a third party seller could dupe a buyer is, is real. And even Amazon worth, what are they worth? Trillion plus dollars now hasn't figured that part out yet. Yeah. Uh, and I think we may get to that. Uh, I do want to pivot though to talk about another class of investment that I know you have some uh, holdings in. Uh, Andy Dunn's uh, digitally native vertical brands. Yep. Um, and uh, just to set the table, my uh, my sense is sort of pre-COVID, uh, it felt like the narrative was that, hey, 
you know, uh, considering how many of these there are out there that not a lot of them had had a particularly good exit or any exit at all. Um, and I had a lot of people in the media calling to say, hey, is, is, is DNVB dead? Um, I talked with a lot of clients about how much more successful like Target was at launching brands than DMVBs. Um, but now uh, that, uh, you know, everyone's back into the, the commerce space as a result of COVID, I'm curious what was it ever true that DMVB was not a good investment, and and what's the perspective now? Yeah, look, I think it's hogwash, right? If you you can even argue like Dollar Shave Club, which was the first one to exit, I think did so at a billion dollars plus, right? I think you know there's been a lot of Warby Parker hater, haters over time, but that business that business could be worth twenty billion dollars someday. It may take a while, um, but you had you know I think companies like Glossier. Hims, Roman, even pre-COVID, that they were they were tra- away. Although clearly they may be on the wrong side of the trend just from the travel. Like these companies were were on their way to doing some great things. Um, I think of like you know the Allbirds. Um, what's Rothy's was had his had a tremendous amount of momentum. We talked about Casper. Um, so I, maybe, but I, I've always been. Um, I, I I think it's been important. I think. What maybe got out of whack was valuations. Um, and this happened with a few companies like a stance or the others. Well, these are very good brands, but they were valued like software companies, and they're still at the end of the day, they're they're consumer brands. Um, and so when those businesses trade at at five to ten times revenue and they stop growing or they're burning a lot of money, then there's kind of the investor sentiment is like Ugh. I don't think consumer sentiment ever goes that way because the consumer is not asking what your unit economics look like when they're buying it, engaging in your product, your brand. But investors would just kind of fluctuate in and out relative to the predictability and scale related to software, enterprise software businesses. So I think that's kind of interesting. I think what's also happened is a lot of businesses that really weren't tech businesses were, you know, like a lot of food businesses, for example, or drink beverage businesses, which have done or jerky businesses like They've done great, but those really aren't traditional venture businesses. But then you had, you know, like Blue Bottle Coffee had a huge outcome to net to Nestle, which was a venture backed business. So I don't think they ever came out of favor. Um, I think what kind of what what was out of favor and should have been is just that these companies were burning too much capital relative to their growth rates, um, and eventually, if you're not increasing your margins while growing at rapid rates, you're just going to not be worth as much as I think some venture capitalists thought they could be. And then that creates friction in the relationship and the eventual outcome of the business, for sure. Um, but, you know, I, I hinted at it earlier, is, is I have a relatively simple view of um, direct-to-consumer businesses, is I just like things that have margin, um, from a high-gross margin perspective. Um, I'm not afraid of retail um, but I think you have to be D to C first. You have to have a team that has the DNA of going direct. You have to be able to understand the importance of brand and brand development. You want to have something that's got some community associated with it. You're looking for things that are, you know, candidly economically economical to ship. Um, if it's digital, it's even better. Um, but if it is a product, um, then it fits in a, something the size of a shoebox. Like anything bigger than that gets a little tougher, to be honest. Um, and you want something that, you know, either has natural reoccurring characteristic or such loyalty that people keep coming back to buy. You talked about parachute home as example, you know, they started out really doing sheets and duvet covers and now you can get, you know, all sorts of products for all sorts of soft good products for the home and kitchen. Right. And what people are just falling in love with that brand and they'll buy anything from that brand that services their home. And so it, you know, you can't release a hundred SKUs at once on day one, but over time you build that loyalty and you, you extend your product reach into categories that you really your, your customers are are pushing you to go to. And I think a lot of companies have had some success with that for sure. Very cool. Uh, um, so we've covered marketplaces and DNVB. Another one um, that that I'm tracking really closely and Goat is kind of in here, but we haven't talked about ThreadUp. So so they're a really good kind of poster child for this one. Is it's this kind of you know consignment and then. You know, a big trend in fashion was this fast fashion kind of concept where you would buy lots of lower price goods. But then there's been kind of a backlash against that from the millennial, the younger generations, the the Zoomers or Gen Z and millennials 
because they're really acutely aware of what's going on with environment and whatnot. And, you know, fast fashion generates a lot of fast, fast landfill, I guess I would say. Yep. Um, so, so thread up's really interesting. It's kind of part of this, you know, upcycling and, and, you know, kind of, you know, Instead of wearing these things three or four times and throwing them away, how do we get more people to use these products? Um, uh, is ThreadUp one of your investments and, and maybe give us an overview of how they're doing? Yeah, ThreadUp and Threads, um, I think I invested in 2014 um, and they've done tremendously well. Um, great team. Um, and right, as you know, you know, I grew up, or I spent a lot of time working in off-price mm-hmm. right, and recognize that consumers gravitate to brands at value. Um, and, uh, at the same time, if you just opened up your closet, you know, even if you trimmed it during, uh, COVID, there's still 75% of the stuff in your closet. You're never going to wear again. Um, men and women thread up really focuses on women and kids. Um, but you know, there is value in everyone's closet. Um, and really taking advantage of a lot of the stuff is good product. Now, probably half of the stuff that goes to thread up doesn't end up in the marketplace because it's just like a car or house, everyone thinks their product's worth more than it might actually be. Uh, but the reality is there is a market for that. And importantly for ThreadUp's business, there is an unlimited amount of supply. Um, and so, you know, we are just begun to make a dent in the amount of inventory that consumers own. Um, and so ThreadUp really takes, you know, has built an incredibly robust infrastructure and in multiple warehouses um, in multiple cities where we ingest millions upon millions of items are able to recognize using technology um, which ones are worth something, which one's not, and try and create an, an economic model that that pays the seller uh, without having to then to do anything other than put some stuff in a polka dot bag. Um, you know, growing again back to my eBay days, the biggest problem was it was a pain in the ass to sell on eBay. Um, so you really only wanted to sell the stuff that you knew was going to sell for something of great value. And it wasn't worth your time for something that was 15 bucks um, or 10 bucks. And ThreadUp has kind of said, look, we'll take it. We may not pay you 15, but you're going to get more than you would get if you went to the, just dropped it off at the thrift shop. Um, and just, we'll send you the bag, just put it in there, send it back to us and we'll send you a check. Um, it's, you know, it's kind of modified from there, but this idea of these managed marketplaces and, the, and goats similar is we're, we use technology and we build a lot of infrastructure to do the hard work. And if we can do the hard work to make the, the value proposition very easy for sellers and very valuable for buyers, um, it can create a pretty powerful and, and really differentiated business at scale. Um, and what's interesting about ThreadUp is you know, they, they have more product on hangers than any company in the world. So if you were to go to their distribution centers in like Harrisburg or Phoenix or Atlanta, they're just running three, four stories of hangers on conveyor belts. And that's how they're picking, ingesting and then picking inventory. And we have millions upon millions of products on hangers. And it would be almost impossible for anyone to build something at that scale in a short period of time. Um, including, you know, someday the TJ Maxx's and Ross's are going to have to sell online. And I have to think that they're going to look at businesses like ThreadUp as, hmm, I wonder if we could put our new product in their news product world and think of all the money and time we could save. And I don't know when that happens. Um, I've been waiting six years. It hasn't happened yet, but I do think like, you know, thread up and the like have done some everything. I am not a big peer to peer marketplace investor. And again, this is my eBay um, kind of learnings is I tend to gravitate more towards the managed marketplaces because there you can justify higher take rates. Um, the peer to peer marketplaces are much more competitive from a price perspective. And candidly, it's just not, I don't believe peer to peer works at eventually everything gravitates towards more of the power seller. Um, and so I kind of skip a step and look for those businesses where we jump right into to more of the, the power seller or just provide a great value where the, the, the traditional, the regular person just puts the stuff in a bag and, and the business is taken care of. Yeah. There's a convenience factor on one side yeah, of the marketplace exactly. and a value on the other. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Sure. I think it's a, I, I think I saw ThreadUp has actually entered into some story relationships where their inventory will be at like, uh, I think there, there's a Macy's one and there was a JCPenney one when, when JCPenney was. Yeah. Playing. Yeah. <laughs> and a lot of, and, can, and a lot of brands themselves who want to, you talked about the, the social conscious or the, the eco-friendly nature. Um, I think brands are conscious, conscious of the fact that that does matter to consumers. So by working with ThreadUp and, 
creating a, a trade in trade up formula um, just creates another reason for a, a customer to be happy with a brand. And if it just drives a little bit more loyalty, it more than pays for itself. And from ThreadUp's perspective, we get access to great customers and, and great inventory. Because clearly certain brands, will Lululemon sells better than Gap. Um, it's just a matter of supply and demand. Uh, and so, you know, from ThreadUp's perspective, those are not just great marketing and business development opportunities, but we do get access to inventory that will, is likely to sell faster and at higher prices on the market. Yeah, we we actually had Anthony Marino on the show last year, like episode 170, I want to say. And uh, I was telling him, I chuckled because some of my clients are those discount apparel retailers that are not very bullish on e-commerce. And (laughs) one of the main reasons they say they're not bullish is, oh, man, our inventory is too thin and dynamic to to work on e-commerce. And I, you know, I always like to point out to those CEOs have you seen thread up and real real? I mean, uh, yep. they totally figured out how to do it. Uh, yep. I, I am concerned about time and I want to cover a couple other topics. Uh, as you know, one we've talked a lot about on the show recently is this idea of ship again, that, that, uh, everyone's counting on e-commerce to make up for all the, the diminished store traffic this holiday season, but there really isn't enough shipping capacity for e-commerce to, to save the day. Um, is that a concern for your portfolio companies? Do you have a a, a hypothesis for how holiday is going to play out? And and I guess follow up question: uh, Do you worry about that systemically beyond this year? Like, do you worry about the fact that that uh, e commerce is just going to get artificially limited by these these constraining factors in the last mile? Uh, am I allowed to swear on this podcast? You are. I just have to check the right box when I upload the podcast. But let it fly. Yeah, no, I think I think. Um, after the election, um, kind of coming around, let's assume everyone pushes their, because of this, they're going to push their Thanksgiving day promotions forward or earlier in the calendar to avoid, Mm -hmm. you know, so you think you're going to see my instinct is once we get through election, assuming everything's regardless of wins, you know, things are kind of back to normal COVID normal. So let's say November 15th, maybe right after veterans day, um, it's going to be, you're going to see a lot of promos start then. And it's going to be a total shit show. It's going to be a shit show for probably six weeks. And then it's going to be a reverse logistics shit show <laughs> when everything comes back. Uh, and the reality is um, what concerns me is the fact that uh, the shippers, the UPSs and FedExs are going to these retailers or commerce partner with quotas saying you can do as much as you did last year. But if you expect your business to grow 100% a year, that's not going to work. Um, so I'm worried more about, I think they'll deliver the product. I think they're under promising, uh, but they're going to justify a substantial surcharge on things above your quote unquote quota. And so I think it's going to be very expensive. I think, again, if you're well back from a venture perspective, you'll be able to justify why your shipping expense in Q4 of 2020 was more than you expected. I think that will be universally accepted. Um, I think, you know, if you're a more traditional public company, you're under anticipating that it's going to be you know not great because you're going to see more expense and i think we're going to have a lot of unhappy customers i think hopefully the customer will kind of you know a lot again back to the election we're encouraged to send our ballots in early maybe we'll shop earlier i think you know i would expect i don't know if you've seen i expect 30 25 to 30 percent growth year over year in q4 um and we've been historically 12 to 15 in the last couple years i think that's clearly going to double if not more um, and I think that FedExes and UPSs and USPS know it's coming and they've done all they can for the past six months to get ready, but we're still going to get caught short handed. I do think it catches up at the end because if you just look at the stock price of FedEx and UPS, it's doubled. Like they're going to figure out a way to add capacity. They are smart people. They're both going to increase prices. They're going to, you know, do all the things they do. Um, but I think it'll work itself out. Um, I don't think there's enough slack from the startups. Uh, I guess Amazon conceivably could take them on a slack, but there isn't any company that is has raised venture capital that's suddenly going to make a dent in this. They might put it in their pitch decks, but the volumes and velocities that the big three plus Amazon carry, it just dwarfs anything else that's out there. Um, so uh, I think it's going to be a problem. And we've talked about, like, I'm I'm super excited about returns. I've been bullish on returns as a business since I worked at Nordstrom. Um, and backed a company that solely focuses on trying to to figure out how to 
to lower costs and create better experiences around returns, a company called Happy Returns. And I can't wait to talk about that business in January. Because yeah, I, it's, it's, it's going to be amazing. I, no, I think you're, <laughs> I, I 100% agree. Uh, for all the Today Show producers that are listening to this podcast, um, you know, we've been talking about ship again, but arguably the bigger story is going to be return again. Because, you know, when you buy apparel from a, a brick and mortar store, you return it about 10% of the time. When you buy it online, returns are over 30%. So, you know, this quarter where we are artificially selling everything online, uh, if if we follow past trends, there's going to be an enormous amount of returns and reverse logistics is way harder and has way more constrained capacity than outgoing logistics. And and so, yeah. I, you know, well, look, the, the, the bigger headache is two things. One is and this is a bit contrarian, but I think people haven't been spending money on soft goods, meaning like clothes and apparel relative to other categories. So there's going to be a lot of gifting around things like that that aren't, you know, comfy pants. Uh, so sweaters and more traditional clothes. So those are returned at higher rates, right? Christmas gifts and holiday gifts tend to be higher ASPs. So higher ASPs is a correlation to returns. And importantly, the biggest friction with returns for consumers is how long it takes you to get your money back onto the credit card or the, or the, the gift card in return. And so if there's a, if right now it takes five business days or seven business days to get your credit back in a world of congestion, you may not, it may be a month or six weeks before you get your money back. By the time all that stuff gets processed in warehouses that are, people are working half shifts because of COVID. And so I think it's going to be as much people yelling, not like, where's my money? Where's my credit? As much as it is just the time it takes to get the items back. So I don't think retailers or commerce are even thinking about that yet, but I guarantee you. Oh, no, I, I, I agree. And I especially like there could be a lot of stress in the subprime portion of, of consumer credit come come January. And so, yeah, that that's a huge play. One super funny premise I heard. Um, well, maybe it's true. But in addition, you know, there are all these arguments like, hey, winter, people are going to need warm clothes, even if they haven't bought a lot of apparel. Um, the. One funny one is uh, almost no one uh, that's that's sheltered in places the same size they were at the beginning of the pandemic. And so that could potentially drive more apparel sales and more more returns. Yeah, you either lost a bunch of weight or gained a bunch exactly. of weight. Exactly. Right? Yeah. yeah. Um, the COVID-19, as they say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, one quick one I wanted to hit on just because I like to talk about robots is you guys have uh, invested in a robot uh, – Automation system called Invia, I-N-V-I-A, uh, reminiscent of Kiva. Um, and then, yeah. you know, Amazon bought Kiva and then obviously kind of kept it uh, to themselves. The only other customer I think that had it was Zappos and then they, they bought them too. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, uh, that's a pretty interesting one is, is, uh, you know, I, I imagine demand for that kind of a thing is skyrocketing with, with COVID obviously having less people running around a warehouse is good too. Yeah. Look, I think there's, and there's another, there was a, Invia's number one competitor was a company called Six River, which was acquired by Shopify um, a few about probably about a year ago now. So look, I think the reality is that was original. I'm going to get my numbers wrong, but I think there's 15 million people who work in commerce fulfillment warehouses in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, and pre-COVID, um, you know, you couldn't labor was exceptionally tight, uh, and they're just you know it, it wasn't about robots replacing jobs; it was about driving more efficiency and efficacy in a warehouse. And, you know, these, these businesses like Invia are as much software as they are hardware. They're really warehouse management systems that utilize, you know, automation and robotic technology to really pick bins and bring the bins to the pickers who can, cause robots can't really pick yet, mm-hmm. but they can deliver the bins and they can return the bins to the, the, the staging location and they'll replenish the bins. And so like, I think it's a super interesting business that's really t- trying to use uh, the whole premise on that was candidly retailers need to get closer to their customer. And in the old days, you would park a million square foot warehouse in Iowa or Kentucky because that way you could take advantage of the shipping rates across the zones one, two, three, four, and you could get to California or New York in three days. Turns out that Amazon figured out that the closer you are to the customer, the more the happier they are. So now a commerce provider has to have 10 100 square foot facilities instead of 1 million square foot facility. 
turns out you can't spend as much money on automation in 10 locations as you can in one because you have to spread your budgets out to be one-tenth. So you're looking for more cost-effective automation solutions. And that's really was the thesis around um, NVIDIA is that we can provide a relatively low-cost, variable-cost automation system to help with the smaller warehouses that are more likely um, to be used in certain local markets. And clearly now post-COVID, when you can have half as many people in a warehouse, robots are good partners. They don't complain. They don't yell. They don't breathe. They don't cough. They don't sneeze. All you got to do is they don't pee. All you got to do is change their batteries you know, once every 12 hours, and they're mm-hmm. good. Yeah, they, um, they do they travel back in time and wipe out the human race, however. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yes, yes. Uh, these ones don't talk. Uh, uh, but yeah, so that's a super, like, those are, you know, again, a friction point. The reality is, you know, e- even without COVID, COVID, commerce online is going to grow 10 to 15% for at least the next 10, 15 years. Um, and I don't think we're ever going to have more than 20 million people working in warehouses. And you got to, the only way that we're going to be able to deliver all of that product to meet the expectations of the consumer is we're going to have automation. And, you know, it's a little bit of, I have no doubt it's going to happen. It's going to be when it happens, the scale that I hope for. But we'll look back in 20 years and it'll be a rounding error about what year this became mainstream. But in 20 years, there's not going to be more people in warehouses than are on there, there are now. And I would bet any amount of money on that. And so I'm super excited about where that business can go as well. Yeah, there's been a lot of talk about Amazon uh, monitoring employee communications for talk of unionization. So robots also don't form form unions, which is good, I guess. Uh, the I wanted to I know we're up against time, but I wanted to wrap uh, and just kind of talk about eBay. So so you and I met at eBay. A lot of the uh, you know there's like this eBay mafia folks like yourself that have gone on to do a bunch of stuff. Um, we run into them in the uh, the vehicle auto segment all the time, uh, which is kind of interesting. Uh, like, wasn't one of the fair guys uh, an eBay person? And um, I know Turo is. Yeah, there was. Well, it was Scott Painter was fair, and he yeah. was actually True Car. True Car, yeah. Um, you got no, but you know, the eBay like. auto guys. The founder of Happy Returns is a former eBay Motors guy. <laughs> um, Rod Chesney, who was the CEO of eBay Motors, was the CEO of uh, Trunk Club. Ah, um, he's okay. now a venture capitalist in Chicago. Simon Rothman, I think, was one of the first Tesla investors. Mm-hmm. Um, he went on to be an investor at Greylock. Uh, and then there's a few, there's a lot of the eBay Motors guys. No, there's a lot. Like eBay yeah. had a, a lot of tremendously smart people, um, both in the operations side and really the finance side, legal side. Um, and now, like, my old, my old boss is now the CEO. Yeah. Um, and so Jamie Ioni. Um, worked side by side with him for a lot of years. And, uh, you know, I've talked to him a few times since he took his job. We had a, we kind of had a, an eBay reunion right the day that he got announced to be CEO. And we probably had 20 people, a bunch of old category, you know, people like Dinesh and George Limer and mm-hmm. Todd Lutwak and those people that I know you knew really well. And we were all giving, we were pitching Jamie our ideas and all the things that have been screwed up with eBay for the past 10 years when all of us were gone. Um, and I think, you know, he's done. Uh, you know, they sold StubHub, they sold the PayPal business, they sold the classified business. So there's really only two. They have Korea and the North and the U.S. and European marketplace businesses. And I think he's getting back to the core and recognizing what eBay was good at, which is search and discovery of of unique items or great values. Um, and I think they're spending a lot of resources protecting businesses that are doing very well, like their collectibles businesses. That's the one category that hasn't been disrupted on eBay. And I think Jamie and Jordan um, Sweetman are, are recognize that and they're making investments and doing things that we would never have done when Meg and John and Rajiv were the boss when I was there 15 years ago. So, yeah, yeah. I'm excited. I think the world's a better place with a strong eBay. So I'm hoping they can turn it around and I'm definitely cheering from the, this, the sideline over here. So, so hopefully I'm doing my part to drive GMV uh, by buying some collectibles <laughs> during COVID. <laughs> For sure. Awesome. Well, listen, guys, that is going to be a great place to leave it because once again, we've used up our allotted time. But uh, if there was something we should have brought up and didn't or you have a burning question, feel free to hit us up on uh, uh, Twitter or Facebook and we're happy to continue the conversation. As always, uh, if you enjoyed the show, we'd sure appreciate it if you could jump on iTunes and give us that five star review. Greg, if folks want to find you online, where are the best places to find you? Yeah. Um, uh, Easiest, my email is just greg at upfront.com. 
50 50 i'll get back to you um but that's it pretty simple uh you can go to linkedin as well um i have a fancy little drawing of me as a picture and you want to send me a message that way and then at twitter um just at greg bettinelli and my venmo is the same so if you want to send me money you can do that as well uh at greg bettinelli I'm not sure you fully comprehend how the investment role is supposed to work. <laughs> oh, right. It goes the <laughs> other way. So you want to send me the PayPal invoice, you can do that as well. Uh, <laughs> cool. Thanks, Greg. We really appreciate you taking time to share uh, some of these macro themes that you're looking at. I think it's super helpful uh, as we head into holiday to to be thinking about the long term before we get wrapped up into the short term. Yeah, great. And you know, congratulations on 244. And also hope you and the family are well and healthy. I know this isn't easy for anybody, and at least this is at a little levity, which I think, you know, hopefully we'll get back to normal someday. And I know we will. It's a matter of when, but hopefully the two of you uh, remain in good health and the same for your family. Uh, thank you very much, Greg, and, and right back at you. And, and to everyone listening, until next time, happy commercing. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com. 